Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. My guest today is John Weaver. He's an attorney with uh, McLean Middleton, and he works uh, on issues related to AI, IoT devices, uh, machine ethics, I mean, all kinds of interesting stuff. So I'm happy to have him. John, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks, Rich. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. So tell me um, a little bit of your background. And, you know, most lawyers, they, they're involved in, I guess, what a lot of people call boring topics, but you've chosen a really interesting <laughs> one. So how did you make your way here? Uh, so I, I fell into it a little bit by accident. Uh, my practice for a while has included the telecommunications industry. And back in 2011, I was reading an article about self-driving cars. And the article had a few sources from the automotive industry, and all of them seemed to agree that there would be some form of self-driving car commercially available by the end of the decade. It was the first time that I'd seen a date certain for the technology to be commercially available. I, of course, read about it in the work that Google and some other manufacturers were doing. But this was the first time that there was a, here's the date, put it on the calendar, we think it should be available by then. And uh, as a, a lawyer and somebody who's looking to drum up business, I thought, wow, there's a, a whole legal market out there that will be there at that point, 10 years from now, and there's nobody there. And if I can plant my flag in it early enough, some of that business will come to me. And as I start to look into self-driving cars, I realize, well, it's not just self-driving cars. There's this whole field of AI and autonomous technology that's coming up, and it's cutting edge, and it's really interesting. And again, there's this whole area of practice that is non-existent now that will be really important in the next decade in 2020s. And uh, the more I, I looked into it and the more I read about it, the more interested I got in it. And uh, one thing led to another and I um, I started doing articles and wrote a book uh, and started advising clients and just sort of uh, snowballed from there. Yeah, that's really smart because these issues will be coming up. And so that's great you position yourself like that. So um, even though the industry is not in full swing, you must be seeing some action. I mean, what are you seeing right now in the legal sphere that's that's either here or it's coming soon for AI and uh, all these new technologies. Yeah, so I, I help clients develop best practices, comply with regulations, and respond to legal issues as they come up. Uh, and on the one of the most pressing concerns right now are the privacy and data security regulations that are popping up in the United States, in Canada, in the EU, the GDPR became effective last month, and uh, that's been a, a big deal. And that has implications for AI and autonomous technology because data, particularly personal data, is a fuel that all that technology runs on. And to the extent that it is limited or restricted in how companies and developers can use it, they really need to understand what they can do with it in order to comply with these regulations. So that's been very, very active recently. Um, But a lot of clients approach me with uh, that are concerned about what are what are the regulations and if there's an absence of regulation as it frequently is, what are the best practices and what should you, we be worried about? Uh, so those are the types of things that I focus on when I'm consulting clients and when I've got my lawyer hat on. Okay, very interesting. Uh, are there any? I mean, what are some of the nearest term issues that you're seeing, or is it? Are there really are there any issues out there yet, or is it not yet time? You mean that are specific to AI? 
Yeah, specific to AI or even um, other technologies. You know, blockchain is a new technology. Three um, D printing, IoT devices. You know, I, I, um, I think you're well. Well, yeah, just uh, uh, AI. That's uh, qu- quite a buffet you've laid out for me. Um, so let, let me run out, run through a few of them. <laughs> um, on the Internet of Things side, uh, one of the, the big projects that I'm working on for. Uh, in the telecommunications industry is basically the infrastructure that IoT is going to run on. We have this image of all these devices in our home, they're interconnected and that uh, so they all run to our phone or they all run through our Alexa or our Google Home. Um, but what we don't necessarily appreciate is the amount of bandwidth of wireless service that that's going to require. And carriers are out there laying the groundwork now for uh, for basically 5G technology that's going to be the backbone of IoT. Uh, and that, what that requires, what we're seeing is a lot of much smaller antennas put in places where antennas have not frequently been. You're seeing them on utility poles. Uh, you're going to see them on, uh, say, on small residential structures or commercial buildings, uh, servicing very small areas, say just a, an eighth of a mile radius. Um, and that's how, uh, that's A, going to support the increased demand, which is growing exponentially, the, the amount of data that we stream is growing exponentially, uh, and will also uh, service the, that last, the last mile problem. Um, the wireless networks have frequently have a hard time getting into, say, the homes uh, or servicing um, places of business where people work and live. Uh, that's why you, you know, almost everybody has a wireless router now. Um, and those routers are going to disappear as these small cell antennas or DAS systems pop up uh, more frequently. So, and a lot of that is uh, contractual issues with particularly utility companies who control the poles, uh, but also land use issues with municipalities who have a, um, frequently have a checkered history with wireless technology. Um, Their residents want it, they really rely on it, but they have mixed feelings about some of the antennas that come in. The nice thing about these small cells is that for the most part, they blend in. If you put them on a utility pole, it looks like anything else that goes on a utility pole. They're small enough that if you put them on a larger structure, well, that they can blend in. Um, so that's right now that laying that infrastructure is a, a challenge for IoT over the next five years. Uh, we're really waiting for the FCC to come in and they've, they have tried to address small cells in regulatory rulings. Um, but we're waiting for something that's a little bit more direct and provides more guidance to states and cities and towns that are dealing with this. Um, mm. and then on blockchain, um, one of the key issues there is that this is a permanent record of frequently the people that um, make transactions with it. That conflicts almost directly with the requirements of GDPR and, um, and the, the Canadian uh, data Privacy Regulation, uh, Personal Information Protection and Electronic Documents Act, the uh, PAPITA, um, where you need to have the ability to, particularly in, in Europe, there's a, a direct requirement that you need to be able to be forgotten and go to the controllers and the processors of your personal data and say, uh, I'm out, erase all the data that you have on me. Blockchain wow. flies completely in the face of that, right? Like the, those two are mutually exclusive goals. And it's an open question right now how those are going to coexist uh, in one system together. Um, and so that's a uh, – there's no easy solution to that right now, but, and I think that's on a lot of people's minds as they are. I mean, certainly as I advise clients on uh, privacy policies and best practice policies for compliance under PEPIDA and GPR and data security laws in the U.S., um, but that also has implications for companies and industries 
they're looking to adopt that uh, blockchain as the, the standard by which they proceed, seeing it as a, a secure way to, um, to keep track of transactions. Um, I know a lot of people in the real estate industry are really interested to see how blockchain can be adopted to eventually replace, say, county registries, where historically, going back hundreds of years, if you bought any property, if you sold any property, that was the record. And particularly in older New England towns, which is my backyard, my bread and butter, the um, you can go back hundreds and hundreds of years to the records of property. Uh, and there's a, a movement among some quarters in the real estate industry to replace that with blockchain, um, since it ideally performs the same function in a, um, in a more convenient fashion, more com- uh, convenient context. Um, but to the extent that the GDPR provisions governing access and control over personal data get adopted in the United States, that could be very difficult. Um, well, then, um, because uh, with, with blockchain, because a record is encrypted, why not if there's a GPDR, GDPR request, why not you know burn the private key so that it's locked in an encrypted uh, format so then it doesn't have to be, you know, I mean, it can't be taken off a given blockchain, but at least inaccessible and therefore kept private. Yeah, and that that might be the the answer. I don't think anybody has done a, a deep dive analysis for how um, all of the functions of blockchain can be GDPR compliant. Um, and you raise a good point that permanent encryption um, is one way to do it. Um, but I, I do think that there's been some evidence of, say, um, blockchain markets that have not, that they've had a flaw in the code. Uh, and so the encryption isn't all it's cracked up to be. Um, situations like that, the encryption isn't permanent and can be broken. Um, and so suddenly data that they thought was turned anonymous is not anonymous anymore. It's not encrypted. Right. I mean, if they, I guess if they do best efforts, maybe that's all you can hope for. You know, if the system is, uh, I guess first the system would have to be allowed to be used for things such as land registry or, yeah, and then I guess they could do a best efforts and maybe that's good enough. I don't know. Yeah, the GDPR, uh, and I've run into this, into this for clients, um, the term best efforts doesn't necessarily show up a whole lot in the GDPR. Um, it's much more binary. You're either doing it or you're not. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So it, uh, it makes a lot of clients nervous because the, the fines can get pretty stiff pretty fast. Um, yeah. Are it, only became effective last month. There's not, there's really no history right now of enforcement actions under the GDPR. The thought in the industry is that um, the commission is going to find, you know, test cases uh, that are either so very public or very large. People. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, based on those, that will give marching orders to smaller companies, small uh, individuals that are operating this space and, and trying to comply with the, the requirements of the GDPR. Makes sense. Okay. Um, um, one, one other pressing concern that mm-hmm. I want to bring up before we move on, uh, this is specific to AI. And this is something that's sort of my go-to topic when I talk about um, how regulations and laws need to be updated to reflect AI. Um, intellectual property laws, particularly in the United States, really focus on the rights of the human author, the human inventor. So what that means is that um, if you develop uh, an AI program that, say, can write novels autonomously, the program itself you own, uh, but there's nothing on the books that dictates how you govern, that dictates where the um, IP for the, the novels that get written by that program go. And as a lot of people, myself included, interpret the laws, and I think this is the most common sense reading, 
all that IP, all the, the novels or music or whatever that gets created by uh, artificial intelligence passes into the public domain. There is no uh, copyright, no intellectual property associated with it. Really? Um, that could be – yeah, and that's a, a big concern for – there are a lot of companies that um, are making either um, plain language narratives based on huge data sets or are, uh, are using programs that autonomously create music on demand or that do art, certainly Google's Magenta Project. Um, uh, does that? I mean, they're, they're not looking to make a profit out of it. It's more theoretical. And hey, can we do this? Um, but there are groups that are using this to make money, and it's only going to take um, yeah. one or two big problems for um, the, the flaws here to become apparent. Uh, and there's a an interesting test case that actually had nothing to do with AI. It had to do with a monkey. It's the monkey selfie case. Um, there's a photographer uh, who is what he did for a living was he went out into remote areas, uh, particularly um, say jungles and set up a camera and he went to an area that he knew was inhabited by uh, some tribes of monkeys set up a camera um, and set it up specifically so that monkeys would find it appealing come down and play with it and take some cool pictures and that's exactly what happened a monkey came down got yeah. right up in front of the camera and took a great selfie that's a monkey selfie huh. and what through a series of legal disputes and court decisions and ultimately a ruling from the uh, U.S. Patent Attorney, uh, U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, um, there was no copyright associated with that monkey selfie because the, mm. the monkey took it, the photographer didn't. So if you think of mm. the, the monkey as the, the AI or the program, that even though the programmer does all the work to get it into place, it's ultimately not a human being who's making the art, making the product. And so there's no copyright that attaches to that. Well, why can't you say that, um, you know, company A uses AI to create music and therefore anything created is the property of company A? Why does it have to, uh, why would you say that the AI itself is, if you're going to say it's an autonomous agent, I mean, I would think it would have to have rights with it. But if you say it's not an autonomous, but it's captive to a given superior interest, like a company, mm -hmm. then I thought, I would think it would fall under the company's ownership and copyright, right? So I, I think that's one that's one approach to fixing the problem. Um, I mean, I guess my my hope is that as more of this technology becomes widely used, we're going to realize that our laws don't quite function the way we want them to. And so we start to explore mm -hmm. and think about, well, how, okay, this technology is changing the way things work. Our assumption has always been that human beings are the only ones making decisions, but now there are machines making decisions with very little, if any, input from human beings. How do we want our laws to operate? What kind of, what do we want the world to look like when that happens? And certainly what you're describing is one way. I'm of the opinion that copyright and intellectual property laws are much more expansive now than they were not that long ago. When the country, the first intellectual property act in the United States gave rights uh, to authors for 14 years with a renewal period of 14 years, this 28 years period. This, the idea of uh, your perpetual copyright is, re is relatively new. I think AI gives us the opportunity to rethink that so that there's more material going into the public domain. The loss of that uh, is really, uh, you know, the, the loss of that I think is um, something that is not talked about a lot, but is keenly felt in terms of what materials are available for schools to use freely, for artists to use to improvise with. Uh, all, all those things, you know, the public domain has been pretty barren in a lot of ways for the past 80, 90 years, um, and I, I think that has side effects that we haven't totally grappled with. Is there a way to use AI as a backdoor for material that is copyrighted? You know, I, I, I'm just pulling this out of thin air, but I thought if um, certain items that are you know, copyrighted, if they're changed to a certain extent, 
they're considered unique. I mean, what if an AI um, were to take uh, that material, change it just enough, and then it becomes public domain by virtue of an AI touching it? That's a really good question. I don't. I'd have to think about it a little bit more, but that's an interesting way to backdoor it. So if you take, if you use the AI as say, like use it as Weird Al Yankovic, right? He he takes um, he takes material that is owned and satirizes it, does a parody, and that becomes brand new IP that is independent from the original artists. Uh, that, yeah. That's a very interesting idea. I mean, I think that there is an argument there that if the AI changes the parodies or satirizes the original. IP in a um, a particular way, or does it enough that it becomes unique IP that goes into the public domain because the AI did it? Uh, that's a really good well, idea. What if it it's is, very interesting. I mean, what if not even satirizing, but let's say um, you know a lot of um, scientific papers are behind paywalls. And there was a guy named Aaron Swartz mm. that actually you know died because of this. Um, what if someone had an AI that took a vast amount of that data, did an interpretation of it, and then posted that, and it's now public record? And I wonder if that would pull the papers out from under the purview of uh, of the paywalls they're they're behind. That that's yeah that that's another. Um... I think that's another interesting application where the paper itself, the papers themselves wouldn't necessarily come from behind the paywall, but if you could use AI to reverse engineer the data to go from the results to the, to the, um, the process or the formula, and then that, that becomes public uh, as a product of AI, that enters into the public domain. Even though it might not exactly match up with the the papers or and the papers themselves are still behind the paywall, um, the a closer idea, better understanding of what that what's behind the paywall, what's the protected IP, uh, that is possible. Yeah. Yeah. Let's say I wanted to look at uh, I don't know, you know heart disease, and I had an mm-hmm. AI read you know fifty thousand papers on heart disease that were behind were behind paywalls, and then the AI did a a survey or a summation of what it found. And that was published and it became public domain and it had references to all these papers that were behind the paywalls. At least you'd be able to see, okay, these things are out there and here's where to go find them. So it would make people's searches, I guess, a lot more efficient and it would it would kind of bring some of the info out from behind a paywall, for instance, and into public domain and become a public good by doing so. Yeah. I mean the just by just by referencing the paper the protected papers in the AI's paper that doesn't necessarily bring them out from behind the paywall, but could, like you're saying, could bring um, greater, make those papers, make that information more accessible because they'll, the, the AI presumably will be able to um, process more of those papers and the information in them than any human author could. So there, the AI would be better able to incorporate those and into uh, more, more studies, more research. Mm. Well, what would it take, you know, for courts to step in and say, all right, well, we need to make a determination on the rights of, uh, you know, of computer-generated stuff? I mean, can, are there any lessons from corporations and how they function and how they're seen legally? Is there any? Do you think that'll be the first bridge to give AIs uh, rights or no rights? I mean, where do you, how do you think this is going to proceed from here? Um, I think courts will be reluctant to say AI or or robots have X, Y, Z, these limited rights. Um, I think that what will happen is that there will eventually be legislation and regulations that give defined, very limited legal personhood to AI and robotics. Um, 
And, and I'm in favor of that. I think that in the same way that well-defined, limited legalhood for corporations has been, a, in general, a, a real benefit to the world, I, I think that the same thing can be true of AI. Now, the, the danger that we have to worry about with AI is the same thing that's happened with corporations, is that there's a slippery slope, that once you give them the right to, to contract and to assume debt, um, they can possibly, over the course of time, expand those rights to the point where they have the, the right to freedom of speech and they have all, all these other rights that were not intended when um, corporate charters were first issued by uh, parliament or Congress, Congress or state legislatures, and certainly not when um, the, the process of forming a corporation was standardized so that it didn't take a, a specific act of a governing body that could be done administratively. Um, I, I think that's the, the danger. Um, but I mean, for corporations, that took 100 plus years. And so I don't think we're anywhere close to that with AI. Um, with AI, I think that giving them very limited legal rights, for example, in the, the context of IP or uh, where they're acting autonomously as agents for people to say, go out and do shopping or to make some limited decisions to give them agency rights um, so that they can enter into contracts. Um, that those types of things make a lot of sense to me. And uh, the point of all of this should be how widely can we spread the benefits of AI? We don't want the benefits to accumulate to a small portion of the population. We want the benefits to be widely spread. And I think that the, the best way, the only way historically this has been done is when government steps in and says, okay, we, we've come together as a, a culture, as a country, as a society, um, and we've put some thought into this, and here's how we want the world to work with this new technology that's changing the world. And so here are the regulations we're putting down. And mm. it, they're not going to be perfect on the first try. They're going to have to be adjusted. But at least they're there, and the players that are in the field can adjust what they're doing to try and meet those goals. Well, I just realized I'm thinking probably one of the first places where um, AI is going to be important is autonomous vehicles. You know, what if, uh, yes. again, an autonomous vehicle gets into a crash, who are they going to go after? The owner of it, exactly. The company that made um, it. What's your thoughts there? Um, so I, I address this in my book, and uh, specifically, uh, I, I think that there's a, a role for limited legal personhood. If you create the uh, a status for the car, where the car has to be insured, but it's a uh, a self-contained legal entity, so that the liability from that, that accident, assuming there isn't fault on the part of the human being in there, there isn't a, a, a fundamental product defect that can be traced to the manufacturer, but if the car is operating the way it should in autonomous mode and gets into an accident, it causes damage, well, that's a self-insured legal entity. Um, and the victims can go after the insurance policy, um, and the driver and the manufacturer who have done nothing wrong don't have to worry about liability issues. Yeah, that'll be pretty good. That's probably the first manifestation of, uh, you know, of an AI or a, a quote unquote robot that we'll see is my guess. But yeah, I certainly one of the first. I agree with that. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I really like your insights. It's it's fascinating. I didn't think much about this at all. I don't think most people do. They just think, <laughs> oh, you know, whether they have uh, autonomous stuff or not, but we don't think about the legal implications. So where can uh, I, I really enjoy the field? I think it's growing. I think ten years from now, um, it'll be much bigger, and uh, uh, it is. It's fun to geek out over it. Uh, there, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. Yeah, I spoke to uh, John Hornick, who's big into 3D printing and what's going to happen there with copyright and everything. So there's there's a couple of guys that are smart that are leading the field in this new and emerging area. So very good. Um, uh, what's a What's a good place for listeners to find out more? You said you wrote a book. Can you tell me the name and how to get it? And yeah, absolutely. Um, 
robots are people too. Uh, it's available <laughs> on Amazon. Um, at the time, it was a clever play on a Mitt Romney quote, and now it's just a book title since that, the, the quote is no longer out there, really, and certainly he isn't either for the most part. Um, yeah. uh, the book was recently named one of the best books on AI by Book Authority, um, so you can find it either on bookauthority.org or amazon.com. Uh, I'm a contributing writer at Slate uh, talking about issues of AI, autonomous tech, and legal issues that come up as those technologies become more prevalent. Uh, and, and I'm also a columnist and a member of the board of editors for the Journal of Robotics and the, excuse me, the Journal of Robotics, Artificial Intelligence and Law. Well, very good. Well, John, I really appreciate you coming. And uh, this is like super interesting stuff. So thank you so much. Rich, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right, hold on a second. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.